never a choice of the nation Our chieftain so brave and so true And we'll go for the great reformation For Lincoln and Liberty too We'll go for the son of Kentucky The hero of Hoosierdom through The pride of the sucker so lucky For Lincoln and Liberty too We all agree that the seceded states so-called are out of their proper practical relation with the Union and that the sole object of the government, civil and military, in regard to those states is to again get them into that proper practical relation. I believe it's not only possible, but in fact easier to do this without deciding or even considering whether these states have ever been out of the Union than with it. Finding themselves safely at home, it would be utterly immaterial whether they had ever been abroad. Let us all join in doing the acts necessary to restoring the proper practical relations between these states and the Union, and each forever after innocently indulge their own opinion whether in doing the acts he brought the states from without into the union or only gave them proper assistance they never having been out of it so that is abraham lincoln in his last public speech a speech he gave on reconstruction in in washington dc um, a speech that uh, was the best evidence we have perhaps about lincoln's view about reconstruction would be and if you've been listening to the series, you know I think uh, Lincoln was quite in the wrong in his view of Reconstruction. We see in this quote that he believed essentially secession was an aberration and re restoring these states to the Union was the proper goal, proper goal of Reconstruction. Um, but anyways, we'll talk more about that in this episode. So uh, welcome back then to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, I'm very excited here to finally be able to finish up this series on Abraham Lincoln and finishing up this series on American political writing since the American Revolution up up to the Civil War. Uh, we looked at uh, the writings of Thomas Jefferson. We looked at the writings of Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, particularly Democracy in America. And then we looked at the writings of Abraham Lincoln. So this has brought us almost 100 years um, through American political thinking and through some dramatic changes. So in this episode, we're going to focus on the writings of Abraham Lincoln in 1865. There's not that many of them. He only lived uh, three and a half months into, into 1865. Of course, dying on April 15th in the morning, uh, a few hours after he was, he was shot by John Wilkes Booth. Um, so we'll quickly go through a handful of important documents, say a little bit about the last few months of his life and the importance of events of that, of that year. Uh, not so much to speak of militarily. Um, it wasn't, I mean, there were important battles and events, but the war had pretty much been decided by, by the end of 1864 with Sherman's March to the Sea and the fall of Atlanta and the Overland Campaign. So it's, it's, it's really a matter of, of, of understanding where Lincoln saw his second term, where his second term would have would have gone. So anyways, uh, let's just jump into it. And then I'm going to, well, uh, after we talk about these these final documents in this, the Library of, of American Anthology of Lincoln's writings, I am going to say a little bit about what I feel about this series overall, the whole series, starting with Thomas Jefferson and, and what I think are the major themes and what we can get out of reading these these two presidents, the writings of these two presidents and, and one French observer. Um, what is the story of, of the United States in, this, in, the, in that period? So 
um, yeah, well, that's where that's where we'll go. So um, as for the important events in Lincoln's life in 1865, uh, we can look first to the passage of the 13th Amendment in, in Congress. It had already passed the Senate. It needed to pass the House of Representatives by a two-thirds majority. That's what the Constitution demands. Um, Lincoln had d decided to push this through in the lame duck Congress, uh, largely because he didn't want slavery. This is my understanding. Anyways, he didn't want slavery to be uh, a negotiation um, item in the in in the in the peace with the Confederacy, right? Because I mean, the Confederate military was breaking down, right? Peace was imminent, um, and it may have happened even before his inaugural address. So he didn't want it. He knew the new Congress would have passed the Thirteenth Amendment, but he didn't want any space for for slavery to be part of the negotiation with the South. He wanted it, and, and, he, and he, I think he thought all along since the Emancipation Proclamation about that by ending slavery, he could speed along the defeat of the Confederacy because it would make what they're fighting for, the existence, of, the continued existence of slavery, essentially irrelevant. But he, he did successfully get it passed through a, a less um, a less sympathetic Congress, uh, the the lame duck Congress. That, that's all. If you've seen the the Spielberg movie on Lincoln, that does a fairly decent job of, of looking at what Lincoln had to do to get that 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 passed. None of that is really revealed in here. There's a little bit that. If, if you saw that movie, you, you see echoes of that story in these documents, but not, not much. Um, so that that's um, first, um, mostly in January. In February, especially on February 2nd, he has a peace meeting with with Confederate leaders, um, which not, not nothing formal is resolved, but it, it was um, a formal meeting between um, high-ranking officials, president, I think the vice president of the Confederacy was, was there. So um, there's that. Uh, not long after that, Lincoln signed a bill that would have created the Freedmen's Bureau. This is a very, very important institution in Reconstruction politics. And if you haven't read Du Bois's uh, Black Reconstruction in America, uh, you should. Uh, but it goes into a lot of what the Freedmen's Bureau do, did in the, in the kind of the lost cause historiography or the pro-Southern white supremacist history that came out. In the, in the end of the 19th century and early 20th century about Reconstruction, the Freedmen's Bureau was presented as, a, as, as just one other corrupt agency of, of, in, in Reconstruction governments. Uh, but Du Bois was really the first to say, no, no, this was a, a, a tool of revolution and should be reconsidered. Um, very, very important um, engine. Even if you, we talked about this a little bit in The Souls of Black Folk. I, I did definitely looked at that book. And he has several chapters on the soul, uh, in the Souls of Black Folk on the Freedmen's Bureaus. Uh, but that was something that Lincoln passed. And that suggests that Lincoln did realize there had to be a social or economic component to, to Reconstruction, even though he didn't emphasize it in his speeches. And he certainly thought it was secondary to restoring the Union. Uh, but the Freedmen's Bureau did things like establishing marriages between these formerly unrecognized marriages, helping uh, with a little bit of land reform, helping black people buy land or get a hold of, of some some land and, and did other things. It, it didn't have enough power to really achieve a social revolution in in the South, but it did what it could. Um, in March, of course, you have the second inaugural. I always, you know, when you look at these older presidents, we got to remember the lame duck period was much longer. It wasn't until the 30s, I think, that they, they shrunk that lame duck period. Even like Roosevelt, in 1932 or 1933 didn't actually take office till March. So you had these really long lame duck periods 
in those periods. I, I maybe it was because you know communications were slower, transportation was slower. But anyways, that was that's how it was. It was only later, more recently, that you have that shorter two month lame duck period. So it's in March that we have the second inaugural, the second inauguration of Lincoln. And that, of course, leads to the, that's where he gives this great speech, the second inaugural address. It's a short speech. It's, it kind of stands with the Gettysburg Address as a speech that, that really gives some meaning to the war, um, elevating it to, to be a, you know, uh, about kind of reimagining what freedom is. It's, it's a much more, uh, it's a speech with much more malaise, though, I think, as, as, we, as we'll see. I, I like it. I very much like the second inaugural. Uh, Lee's surrender took place on April 9th, 1865. And Lincoln then gave his last speech two days later. And that's the speech I referenced at the opening of this episode. That is his final speech. It was on Reconstruction and, and really using Louisiana as a model for, for other states. And then, of course, three days after that, at the theater, at Fort Theater, Lincoln was shot by uh, John... Wilkes Booth, um, and he died the next day uh, around 7 a.m. Um, and that's 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 the story of Abraham Lincoln. So militarily, not too much to talk about. Uh, of course, uh, after the Overland Campaign in Virginia, Lee's army and Grant's army were basically in a, in siege warfare, uh, trench warfare for a number of months. That finally broke down through um, Union offensives, and and. They tried to escape, but the army was unable to and was finally forced to surrender. That took place on April 9th. Uh, Sherman moved north from Savannah, uh, trying to meet up. Eventually, the goal was to meet up with, with Grant's forces in Virginia, but it became unnecessary. But it did bring um, like South Carolina, North Carolina into the Union fold. And there was some other assorted fighting out in, in the West. But... Um, yeah, militarily, not that much to emphasize if we just give if you just want a broad survey of, of, of Civil War history. Um, but nevertheless, a very, very important year in American history, the year uh, that saw the 13th Amendment pass, that saw the end of the Civil War, saw the, the beginning of Reconstruction, the assassination of, of the first president, the first president to be assassinated, I mean. So, um, yeah. But let's jump into these documents, and I'm not going to focus on too many of them. In fact, there aren't that many. It's, it's a rather short section, um, and then and we'll kind of wrap up this series. All right, the first one that's, that's perhaps of interest uh, was written to General Grant on January 19th, 1865, where Lincoln actually says, I'm not writing you as a president. This is an order. I'm just wondering if you could give my, my son uh, like a position in the army, like maybe not. He didn't want him to be an enlisted man, I think. Lincoln didn't want to lose another um, child, um, and he was probably, but at the same time, his son wanted to be part of the war and didn't want to feel he was getting special privileges. So, um, yeah, this was Robert Todd Lincoln, and he, he eventually got a position as captain. He served for a few months, basically, as a, as a staff officer under, under Grant's command. So Grant did acknowledge Lincoln's request here. But it's just a little bit of family history. In fact, let me say this now. I've been meaning to do this. I, I don't really have too many compl complaints about this anthology. I think it's really good and it doesn't really need to be longer. But I do think if someone were to pick this up and, and wanted to have to know something about Lincoln's private life, I think you'd be disappointed. I think there's some really good stuff in the first volume, especially from the 1840s and 1850s, his relationship with some of his friends, Joshua Speed. In particular, his courtship, but very, very sparse. I mean, you you can't really get a, a true feeling of Lincoln's inner life uh, 
his friendships, his 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 two courtships um, from these documents, right? There's not that many of them, and, and this is an example of one of the few uh, documents that maybe touch on on some of his personal life. And I don't know, maybe those documents don't exist, or they haven't survived, or or they're not available, or, or whatever. You know, obviously these public documents survive in, in the archives. So I don't know if that's the reason, but I do think if someone wanted to know more about Lincoln, the inner life of Lincoln, you're going to have to go to a different anthology to get those sources or maybe read a biography. Um, but that's really my only complaint about about this this anthology. I think in other ways, it, it's it's very, very good. It's a very solid introduction to, to Lincoln's thought, but um, that's it. Um, the next one I found interesting was, was just a day later to, to Major General Reynolds, Joseph Reynolds. And it's, again, it's, it's some of these issues that comes up with, with just as the war is dying down, as Confederate territory was being occupied, as armies were using private property of, of, of Southerners and even some people in the North, and, and just what, just the, the bureaucratic problems of dealing with confiscation. So in this particular case, a woman, Mary E. Morton, whose owner independently of her husband of certain buildings, premises, and furniture, which she, this is quoting directly, which she with her children had been occupying and using peaceably during the war until recently when the U.S., this general, sees it, the property. And it seems she insists on this was privately owned. Now, the husband was serving in the Confederate Army in the, in the rebellion. So maybe that became the justification for seizing it, but this woman's claiming that she owned it independently. That's not really... Um, tied to the husband. And then furthermore, the question comes up is, was this property seized for a proper military use, in which case the seizure would have been justifiable under U.S. law at the time? Or, you know, was it, was it seized for other reasons? And Lincoln here makes clear, the seizure must have been on some claim of confiscation, a matter of which the courts and not the provost marshals or other military officers are to judge. In this case, would probably be the question, is either the husband or wife a traitor? End quote. And this is this is this seems to have come up a lot. Um, now, obviously, the slavery issue was special because the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery. You know, regardless of whether people were active traders or not, but um, whether property was taken, and sometimes property was taken from slaves. Right under the law, slaves didn't have property. Right now, it got a little fuzzy with the Emancipation Proclamation, where then I mean, obviously, under slavery, slaves had essentially property. Often, they had their own gardens, they had their own, they raised animals, and sometimes this was accepted by masters, just as, as you know, keeping slaves a little bit happier, giving them a little bit more incentive to, to stay on the plantation and all that. They, obviously, they had property, even if it wasn't acknowledged by the laws of these southern states. But once the Emancipation Proclamation was in effect, in, in act, obviously this stuff is, I think, from the federal government's point of view, their property, but some of it was also seized as these plantations were, were seized and their resources used. Um, but they, you know, you wouldn't say that the slaves were sort of traitors, right? Um, so obviously property of people who were not active traders was taken throughout the war. And then courts had to decide how much of this had to be uh, returned or did people have, have to be compensated for. Just another uh, interesting issue. I'm sure there's been plenty of books written on this very very question. Um, but Lincoln here is emphasizing a couple of key questions like, are these people traitors? Is the, is the owner of the property a traitor or just the owner's husband? Or the other question is, how was this used? Was it a legitimate military purpose or not? Um, 
All right. Um, around the same time, we have a, a document called Reply to Philadelphia Delegation. This is a really interesting thing. And sometimes it's not clear from the document what's going on, but you have to look at the notes. And there are pretty good notes at the end of the volume. And in this case, is, is, it's one of those cases where he's responding to a gift that was given to him um, by um, an, or a group. And what it is, is it's kind of interesting. What it was, was a vase of dry leaves gathered from the Gettysburg battlefield. Um, and he, you know, thanks him for the gift, but also talks a little bit about the significance of his own, the Gettysburg Address, and the importance of women's participation in helping to win, win the war. He wrote to them, so much has been said about Gettysburg and so well said that for me to attempt to say more may only serve to weaken the force of which has already been said. A most graceful and eloquent tribute was paid to the patriotism and self-dying labors of the American ladies on the occasion of the consecration of the National Cemetery at Gettysburg by our illustrious friend Edward Everett, now last departed from the earth. He doesn't talk about his own Gettysburg address there. He's, he's not... Um, so arrogant that he would emphasize that he talks about someone else. Remember, Lincoln's address there was just one of several um, addresses, and his was rather short, right, uh, compared to some of the other addresses. And and this is apparently things that were talked about there. So um, yeah, I think Lincoln. A lot of these documents are responses to serenades, responses to gifts, uh, farewell addresses to different unions that were being decommissioned. And stuff like that. And a lot of it is, it's fun. It's really nice flavor that goes into these, this collection. So there's just some documents from, from January. As for, as for February, um, you know, we don't have anything here about any documents talking about the work he did to get the 13th Amendment passed. Um, a few, the 13th Amendment is mentioned a few times in other documents, uh, kind of after the fact. Um, and that's, and they come up a little bit in February. For instance, in one speech he gave on February 1st, he said, he talks about the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, oh, actually, this is, uh, this is someone else speaking on behalf of the president, I think, the way it's worded. Um, but anyways, um, the guy speaking says, he, meaning Lincoln, thought all would bear him witness that he never shrunk from doing all that he could to eradicate slavery by issuing an Emancipation Proclamation, but the proclamation falls far short of what the amendment will when it's fully consummated. Um, a question might be raised whether the proclamation was legally valid. Um, now this might be, this is another reason that Lincoln certainly wanted to push forth the 13th Amendment. It would have been passed eventually, but he wanted to do it before uh, peace negotiations. But also he, you know, he was just worried that the Emancipation Proclamation could be undone by some future administration or by, you know, some point later, because it was a wartime, it was presented as a wartime necessity, not, not law. So, you know, there's a few mentions of it, but but we don't get much of the details here. Um, one one thing, uh, speaking of of the question of race and and the end of slavery, is uh, a note he writes in encrypted note with a cipher to John Glenn, who's a commander of some post in in Kentucky. A lot of black soldiers served in these these kinds of uh, different forts, and he writes very tersely to this commander. Lincoln does. Complaint has been made here forcing Negroes into the military service and even torturing them, riding them on rails and the like to the extent to, to exhort their consent. I hope this may be a mistake. The like must not be done by you or anyone under you. You must not force Negroes any more than white men. Answer me on this. Quite, quite insistent that this 
if this is true, he wants it ended. Now, one, a lot of the, this, the final pages of this anthology consists of like a, a report that Lincoln put together on the, the peace negotiations he had early, early on, February 2nd, with, with the Confederacy. And it, it's kind of his writing interspersed with, with different letters uh, at the time. And it, it even talks about the Blair mission to originally have a conversation with, with Confederate leaders. And so if you want to know the day-to-day -day process by which this, this meeting was arranged and, and, and accomplished, uh, you can read that. A lot of this was, was, was actually dramatized in that Steven Spielberg movie, Lincoln. Um, and it, it seems that was fairly, fairly accurate to the events going on here. Now, most important maybe is his conclusion about this meeting where he writes to Congress, no other person was present, no papers were exchanged or produced, and it was in, it was in advance agreed that the conversation was to be informal and verbally, and verbal merely. On our part, the whole substance of the instructions of the Secretary of State herein before recited was stated and insisted upon, and nothing was said inconsistently therewith. While by the other party, it was not said that in any event or on any condition, they ever would consent to reunion, and yet they equally admitted to declare that they would never so consent. They seemed to desire postponement of the question and the adoption of some other course first, which, as some of them seemed to argue, might or might not lead to reunion, but which course we thought would lead to an infinite, indefinite postponement. The conference ended without result. And, and that's kind of what history tells us about this meeting, that essentially the Confederates did not agree to surrender and, and, and therefore, you know, it, it wasn't going to happen. It would, of course, be pushed a couple months uh, or a month and a half down the road until, uh, you know, the f well, no, over two months uh, later when Lee's surrender would basically um, force the, the end of the Confederacy. So, but anyways, this document is, it seems to be the executive report to Congress on this, this mission. Now connected to this is Lincoln's instructions to Grant given on March 3rd, 1864, where he basically tells Grant that, that Lee is not to make any political um, demand or, demands or concessions in his, in his surrender. It's merely going to be a military one. And he wants to, you know, he wants to keep Lee's surrender to be purely military, militarily a military uh, surrender. Um, and I don't know how much of, you know, I don't really know what was discussed at that, at that um, negotiation, but um, that, that was um, the, uh, his instructions to, to Grant. Of course, Lee would surrender a month later. Now, as for the second inaugural, it's only two pages long. Um, I, I do urge you all to read it if you haven't read it yet. It's, it's really a wonderful speech. It, the first inaugural, of course, focused on efforts to try to avoid secession. By the time the first inaugural was, was given, many southern states had already seceded um, and, and fighting had not yet broken out. So there was still hope that maybe uh, some kind of negotiation could be worked out that would keep the union together. And that was Lincoln's focus on that. Um, and so that's why he used the language of better angels of our nature prevailing. Yeah, that's what he hoped. Um, by 1865, it's clear that the better angels of, of, our, nat of our nature had not prevailed. And, and the, the, most bloody war in US, the most bloody war in U.S. history is almost coming to its, to its end. Um, and he, he starts out and he basically kind of reiterates what I just said here, that the first inaugural 
was about maintaining peace, but that failed and the war came. And then he immediately jumps to the core issue of the war, and that is slavery, saying one-eighth of our whole population were colored slaves, not equally, not generally distributed over the Union, but localized in the southern part. These slaves constitute a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war, unquote. Of course, people still continue to deny this, uh, and you can still find YouTube videos of people claiming the war was about something else besides slavery. I don't know of any serious professional historians of the Civil War who don't see slavery as central to it. Some have a more complex view, maybe, of, of the causes of the war, but at some point, slavery is at the root, root of it, and Lincoln here is, is establishing the same thing. Um, and then he talks about you know, how the war went from being something people thought would be short and, 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 and quick and easily decided to something um, quite brutal and prolonged. Um, he sees the war, he talks about the war in ways that later, um, maybe not so much Lost Cause um, writers did, you know, because Lost Cause writers and that, that tradition of historiography tended to emphasize that the South was sort of in the right in the war. And, and although they were defeated, they were defeated nobly and they were on the, they, they basically were in the right. Right. There's another tradition. Of course, there's the emancipatory tradition, too, which was also was, was basically suppressed for much of the late 19th, early 20th century, although cultivated by black writers and in black historical memory. But the emancipatory narrative was kind of pushed aside. It was revived in the 60s and, and, and now it's a bigger part of, of writing about the Civil War. But I guess there there was in the in the suppression of that kind of narrative of the war about uh, as a racial revolution. A revolution to end slavery there's this kind of brother versus brother i don't know if there's a formal name for this tradition kind of the reunion uh narrative right and the same way kind of lincoln's view of reconstruction was about unifying uh the country again right then you want to emphasize if that's your goal you want to emphasize that that the war is an aberration in in kind of a, a national brotherhood and Lincoln sort of talks this way, right? So I don't, he certainly doesn't suppress the racial dimension in here and the importance of slavery to it. But at the same time, he injects this idea that, that there is kind of a common worldview, uh, North and South, writing or saying in the speech, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in writing their bread from the sweat of other men's face, but let us not judge let us judge uh, not that we be not judged, end quote. And there's a lot in that couple sentences here, uh, two sentences. One is he does kind of say, well, we're kind of brothers versus brothers narrative, which, of course, would be much stronger in Civil War memory in the following decades, culminating, I think it was in the, the 50th anniversary of, of, of the Battle of Gettysburg, maybe the 60th. Um, where you kind of had the surviving veterans of the battle kind of meet on the battlefield, you know, in their old uniforms and all that stuff. It's a um, pretty grotesque uh, event, it seems to me, uh, because that was at a time when, when the racial narrative of the Civil War is being so firmly suppressed um, by, by writers, of the, the story, writers of the story of the war. But anyways, uh, at the in the same sentence, though, and he does that, he does kind of say, right, I'm not sympathetic to people who earn their living off, off 
the slavery of others. But at the same time, he says, I, I'm not going to judge. I mean, he's kind of equivocating here a little bit too much, it seems to me. It doesn't really take away the power of the speech, but it does um, show, I think, a, a focus on reunion. Which is fine and dandy, except that, that, that the reunion narrative in the hundred years since the Civil War um, has been so key to white supremacy. And, you know, there's a lot of people focus on the lost cause memory of the war as tied to white supremacy. And that's true. But the reunion narrative also has, has done that. And there's a wonderful book called Race and Reunion written, I think it's about 20 years old by now, but it's really the best book on this subject of, of how the Civil War has been remembered in the later 19th century and how the reunion narrative worked to suppress the memory of the war as a revolution in race relations and a revolution for black black Americans. Now he, from this though, he says like, I'm not gonna judge lest we not judge, but he does reserve judgment for God, right? And so this is some of his most famous language in this little speech where he says like, it, this war is perhaps punishment for the original sin of our constitution, the original sin of our, of our republic, and that is, is slavery. He said, if we should suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove it, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes, which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him. Right, so he says this is kind of punishment for both sides. So again, I think this combined this this is still a kind of a reunion narrative, right? Instead of making slavery a sin of of the South, he makes it a national sin that both sides are paying for at this time. And to a degree, I, I don't disagree that it is a national sin. It wasn't just a regional, right? Slavery at the time of the American Revolution was a national institution, um, and only slowly did it die down in the North, and. You know, even in the 1850s, the debate over slavery was largely about its expansion, not whether not its fundamental morality. These are issues we talked about at length in, in earlier episodes in this series. Um, and then he's got this great line, um, some of the most powerful st stuff he's ever written, I think. Finally, do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away? Yet if God's wills that it continues until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid with another drawn with the sword, as it was said 3,000 years ago. So still, it must be said, the judgment of God's are true and righteous all together. So he interprets the war here as, as punishment for a national sin, right? And that the payment in blood and, and wealth is, is, is being made for this sin. Then in the final short paragraph, he kind of then speaks to the future and, and tie, binding America's wounds, caring for the orphans, caring for the, the widows, and, and, and establishing a lasting peace. So that's kind of the, the ending is an emphasis on Reconstruction. He doesn't give any details, and, and that's not the point of an inaugural address, I don't think. But um, certainly he's, he's looking forward then. So it's a nice speech that, that that's kind of comes full circle, beginning with the his memory of what the first inaugural was trying to do and its failure, the war, the, the suffering of, of America, the, 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 the war as a war about slavery and, and leading to the end of that institution. Um, 
and then finally some kind of future vision. Again, a very, very short speech given on March 4th, 1865, but a very, very powerful one and, and one I think um, everyone should should take a look at if, if you want to um, just read a good speech if for no other reason. All right, jumping ahead, uh, this, this document was written on April 5th, 1865 uh, to John A. Campbell, which is essentially Lincoln's statement on, on what is required for, for peace. And he's got three points. Um, number one, uh, restoration of national authority through all the states. Uh, two, uh, no cessation of hostilities unless it's, it's the total disbandment of Confederate rebel forces. Of course, he never establishes the Confederacy as a, as a separate government. You know, he talks about like rebels or hostile forces, hostile government or whatever, but that, that's just um, political um, rhetoric. Us historians know that the Confederacy was a, was a state, um, just a non-recognized, not one recognized by anyone else. Uh, the, the third point was, was no negotiation on the slavery question, right? That slavery was done. Um, and that's... That's the, the foundation, right? And, and not to connect this back to and, and to, to beat a dead horse on the issue of Reconstruction, but that he had the bar so low, I think. And, and maybe at the peace negotiation, it wasn't the time to talk about a social revolution. And, you know, but it, the fact that he doesn't discuss it, he doesn't say anything in any of these documents that I see on, on the broader necessity of a social revolution to really make freedom meaningful, right? You know, of course, freedom, the end of slavery, titanic change in America. But without the corresponding social revolution, without the course, without voting rights, without civil rights, without um, land, I mean, that's the key one, right? I mean, certainly the 14th and 15th Amendment established the foundation for civil rights. They may have been taken away um, by the end of the century you know, with uh, Plessy versus Ferguson and the Jim Crow laws, but they were established at least in the 14th and 15th Amendment. But without land reform, you know, the, the foundation for, for freedom and, and the foundation for freedom that was acknowledged by white Americans, right? At the, t the Homestead Act passed in 1863 by the Republican Party established this idea that, that liberty is tied to property and land ownership in some way, and and for that not to be seen as core, and not that not every, of course, some people, the radical Republicans, understood this, but Lincoln either didn't understand it or didn't want to deal with it, didn't want to offend the South. You know, of course, he prioritized the end of the war and and establishing its core gain, the end of slavery and the re restoration of the Union. But I don't know. I really am disappointed the more I read these documents about just how. Uh, much he compartmentalized the the social issues in in, in the post-war South, and who knows what Reconstruction would have been, and what those debates would have been with the radical Republicans um, and, and Lincoln. You know, I don't think he would have been impeached. I think it would have been hard to impeach the president who saved the Union. Um, but of course, the president Johnson was was impeached um, largely over the question of 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 how you know about Reconstruction politics. Uh, but anyways, that's the standards of peace. Um, and all this leads us to the, the final document I want to talk about today, one of his final speech given on April 11th, his speech on, on Reconstruction given in Washington. And I quoted at the beginning of this episode, so there's not much more to say on that, except that 
you know, he's in this speech, he's using Louisiana as a model for reconstruction. He thinks the Louisiana case is is applicable to the other states in a way of bringing them in, right? Because Louisiana, West Virginia is another case. West Virginia um, was the first kind of southern state to, to come back into the Union, right? It's a special case, right? Those were counties that rejected secession, that they were occupied early by the Union Army and, and brought in, I think, in 1863 as a free state. Um, but, you know, the places occupied early on in the war, the, the most, the best example of this is Louisiana, fully basically under federal control early in the war. So there's a lot of time to establish a Republican Party there, to, to have elections, to have a new constitution. Um, so Louisiana was kind of first, uh, and it became the model that, that, that Lincoln wanted to use for other states. And that's mostly what he talks about in this, in this speech. And in this very speech, though, Lincoln acknowledges the limitations of the Louisiana model. Um, he writes, or he said, and this is a speech, um, quote, that I should drop the suggestion of an apprenticeship for freed people and that I should omit the protest against my own power in regard to the admission of members to Congress. But even he approved every part of the parcel of the plan which had since been employed or touched by the action of Louisiana. The new state constitution of Louisiana declaring emancipation for the whole state practically applied the proclamation to the part previously exempted. It does not adopt apprenticeship for freed people, and it is silent as it could not well be otherwise about the admission of members to Congress. So that, as it applies to Louisiana, every member of Congress fully approved the plan. The message went to Congress, and I received many commendations of the plan, written and verbal, and not a single objection to it from any professed emancipationist came to my knowledge until after the news reached Washington that the people of Louisiana had begun to move in accordance with it. Um, now, later on in the speech, he, he has this quite, it's actually, I think, the essentially the last page of the speech, or the last page and a half of the speech, where he says, like, the foundation is ending slavery. Uh, obviously, we know this, the end of slavery and re restoration to the Union, right? He kind of leaves open the question of, of suffrage for, for black voters. And he seems to know there needs to be more that's done. And here's how he, he says it. He says, um, we encourage the hearts and nerves, the arms of the 12,000 to adhere to their work and argue for it and proselytize for it and fight for it, to feed it and to grow it and to ripen it to a complete success. The colored men, too, in seeing all united for him is inspired with vigilance and energy and daring to the same end. Grant that he desires the electric, elective franchise. Will he not attain it sooner by saving the already advanced steps towards it than by running backward over them? Concede that the new government of Louisiana is only to what it should be as an egg is to a fowl. We will soon have the fowl by hatching the egg than by smashing it, end quote. So obviously he's, he's being the compromiser and the baby steps argument, right? Which maybe makes sense in certain contexts. You know, you have to start somewhere and, and expand on that policy. But we know from history how often the, the half measure doesn't develop, right? We know from the history of Reconstruction that as soon as these state governments were established, they began to roll back the black rights, not advance them, that these eggs were since smashed, but not by abolitionists, not by radical Republicans, but by white supremacy. Um, right? And that the needed reforms never were implemented, the, the, the full needed reforms. And, and again, I say, I, I think it's land reform was the 
the chloroform that was was lost. Um, now, nevertheless, this speech does, I think, give us a very good window into what Lincoln's plan was for Reconstruction, the 10% plan, if 10% of people pledge loyalty, uh, establish a new constitution with that rejects slavery and, and asks for admission to the Union, that will be achieved. And then this becomes the, the, the egg that will, I guess, produce into the fowl of, of, of I guess, the, the revolution, the social revolution that the radicals wanted, right? But we know that what really happened was that those eggs were smashed they were, or they were replaced with a white supremacist egg. Um, so it's, it never, you know, it didn't go far enough, I think. And, and by Lincoln, by setting the bar so low, did, uh, I think, contribute to making Reconstruction as disappointing as, as it was. So anyway, that speech was given three days before um, his assassination. So anyway, that's it. That's it for the writings of, of Abraham Lincoln. Um, I just want to, to thank you for listening to this series on, on American political writing. Uh, I've been wanting to do that for a while. I think the last time I did political writing was maybe a short series on Thomas Paine very early in this podcast. And I've been eager to do that um, for a while. And, and, and I'm, I'm glad to have achieved it. And I hope you, you learned something or got some new insights into American political thought. You know, I've learned a lot by reviewing these documents. And I just want to talk about four stories. Um, and when we take Jefferson, Tocqueville, and, and Lincoln together, four stories that we can use to sort of frame um, American history. And this has been a lot of episodes, right? I think probably about 30 or so, maybe more than that. Um, the first story, I guess, would be the, the rise and fall of slavery in the American Republic, right? Um, and that's been a common theme in all of them, especially in the Lincoln and Jefferson documents. But even in Tocqueville, there's a significant conversation about the place of slavery in this republic and what it means for, for, the, for, the, for the, you know, in what ways was it a contradiction, right? That was a key thing. And that's something all three of these writers understood was that slavery was a, constitution, a contradiction in, in American political life. So I think that's a theme that runs throughout all these. And, and it's, it's certainly the most important story of American history up until 1865 is, is the fall of slavery. I mean, tied to that is another kind of parallel narrative. And that's, I want to say, the, the, the establishment and the fall of the Constitution. Right. Again, we have three writers grappling with the Constitution in a way. Jefferson, not at the Constitutional Convention, but someone who served as president under it and someone who had his thoughts about it, who was anxious about how much federal power the Constitution gave, who was a big believer in states' rights. Um, you know, he understood the danger of slavery and, and to some degree perhaps regretted that the Constitution couldn't do more to end, end slavery. He, he was key in establishing the precedent that the frontier would be free from slavery by helping write the Northwest Ordinance. But he understood the way he described it, right? Holding the bull by the horns, right? You can't let go, but can't keep holding on forever either. Um, Tocqueville seemed to understand that, or Tocqueville, about the Constitution more generally, uh, Tocqueville was very, very interested in state government, local democracy, and, and how democracy kind of emerged from the local level and then was reflected in the Constitution, right? You, you read Tocqueville and, yeah, you learn a lot about the Constitution. And he was very interested in talking about the Constitution, but he was also very interested in local government, right? And so the center state or center locality conflict, which, which Jefferson struggled with when he wrote the, was it the Kentucky 
resolutions or um, which one which i think he wrote the kentucky ones yeah um you know which was kind of the founding text of the states rights movement right tocqueville you know was more interested perhaps in how democracy functioned at the at the level of the federal government versus local local government but he also understood contradictions between those, those the center and and the people and of course lincoln understood these same conflicts when he when he's in the cooper union speech for instance where he he talks about what is how far can the federal government go in regulating slavery what are its powers in the territories versus its powers in the states and then of course as president during the civil war he totally transformed the nature of the relationship between the states and and the federal government uh, really creating a revolution in the constitution culminating in the rewriting of the constitution for all intents and purposes in the 13th 14th and 15th amendment uh, these two themes, slavery and the Constitution, and how they were transformed by this century of history, um, are really tied together, right? Another thing that I think came up in all of these writers is is empire. Um, all were interested in Native Americans. We don't have that much that Lincoln wrote about him. Of course, Lincoln fought in the Black Hawk War. He parlayed with Indians during the war. Um, but I think more significantly, the long-term conquest of the West by the United States through the Homestead Act, through the railroads, through the Indian Wars were all things that were done under Lincoln's watch. And we, we talked about the mass execution, the largest execution in American history, 40 or so Native Americans uh, killed for their participation in an uprising against the U.S. Um, that was Lincoln. For someone who, who pardoned so many people, he also was willing to use them to establish U.S. empire, but uh, the tools of U.S. imperialism in the West, particularly the railroads and, and, and the seizure of land, are, are, were also you know, established in Lincoln's time. But Tocqueville talks so much about the, 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 the Native Americans and their place in American democracy. And of course, Jefferson, his, his vision of the future of, of the Indian being assimilation, right, becoming farmers, and we can think of his speech uh, his his letters to Handsome Lake, for instance, or his very speeches to to Indians, and and we talked a lot about his vision of, of. Of the Indian, and then we also can think of the overseas empire to a degree, especially with the Jefferson, writings, the first war on terror against the Barbary pirates, the conflict about how to deal with with, with, Europe. Uh, Tocqueville not so much talking about that and, and Lincoln not so much either even though there's hints of it in some of the states of the Union about overseas relations of the United States but especially in Jefferson but mostly in the West I, when I think about U.S. empire in this period it's really in the West that, that we have to focus and then finally is I guess the meaning and the potential to expand democracy right in, in many ways the story of these three writers trace us from uh, kind of from a republic, we start with a republic, a conservative republic, uh, based on virtue and and an elitist republic of slaveholders, which was transformed into a, a democracy for white men, which by the time of Lincoln's death had the potential to be uh, a democracy that that included former slaves. Right, the story of Reconstruction, of course, would be yet untold when Lincoln died, but it's an important, you know. That I still think that Reconstruction era is so key to America in, in so many ways. Um, but, you know, through a second revolution, and I think that's one way of looking at the Civil War, is a second revolution, um, the potential for democracy to be expanded was there. So those four themes, I think, 
the, the, the narrative of slavery, the narrative of the Constitution, the narrative of empire, and the narrative of, of democracy are, are what I think are the overall themes of this, of this series. Um, so um, that's going to be all. So I don't know what I'm going to do yet. If Just so you know, I record this on June 2nd. And I'm out of Library of America books here in China. I have a lot more back in Taiwan, and I've started subscribing again, so I have a bunch more waiting for me in the U.S. Um, I think a lot of those that I, new ones I bought are actually the series of Civil War writings. It's five volumes or four or five volumes on the Civil War. I'm not going to to um, do that um, just because I've been in this in the 19th century so much. Uh, I'm almost certainly going to probably go back to some novels. It's been a while since I've looked at those and novels of the of the 20th century most likely. But I don't know what I've I think going back to Steinbeck might be um, interesting. Um, but I'm also thinking about maybe looking at some writers I haven't looked at before, like um, um, Mary McCarthy, maybe or, or some others. Maybe it's uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, so but I'm going to take a about a, a month or so off um, and when I get back to Taiwan at the end of June I'll make a decision about where this series will go in the future so um, that's that so uh, thanks for watching hopefully there won't be too much of a delay from the time this episode airs and is uploaded to when I start producing new material um, but um, it may be a little bit of time so as always, thanks for listening. Um, please leave your comments about this episode or this series as a whole below. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or you know, and do, do leave a review of, of iTunes. I'd really, on iTunes or some other platform, I'd really appreciate uh, the support there. So um, thanks again, and, and I'll see you next time with, with I don't know what. Uh, we'll see what it will be. Now we'll find what by felling and mauling our railmaker statesmen can do the people are everywhere calling for lincoln and liberty too then up with a banner so glorious the star-spangled red white and blue we'll fight till our banners victorious